Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another exceptional guest. He's a graduate of the University of Florida College of Law and is currently a partner at Freeman, Mathis, and Gary. He's held recent positions as a partner at Goldberg Segala, as well as a partner at Pretzel and Stouffer. Finally, he is the co-host of the Podium and Panel podcast. It is a great honor to welcome Mr. Patrick Eckler to the show. Patrick, how are we doing today? Great. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. No problem. Now, Patrick, before we get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? So uh, I uh, came to Chicago for the weather. Uh, first, as you laugh, but that's actually <laughs> true because I grew up in Florida. And if you've been there, it's it's hot. Um, and uh, it's not always hot here, though it can be. Uh, I came here as an undergrad and then uh, went back to Florida when it was my turn to pay. Uh, and then came back after law school, uh, not intending to practice. When I went to law school, I've now practiced and eventually I'll get it right after 20 years. <laughs> do primarily uh, professional liability and insurance coverage work. So professional liability defense. Uh, no, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to commit the professional liability mistakes myself, trying to avoid those, but also help others when they get themselves in those situations. And then I do insurance coverage is a, uh, makes up uh, almost all of my practice between those two. Uh, I, I'm the co-chair of our firm's professional liability uh, group, uh, group team, something like that. Uh, they changed the names. Uh, and uh, that's that's what I do. Well, let's let's so let's start off. You said you started off in the University of Chicago and you graduated with a near Eastern language and civilization degree, which I've never seen ever in my life. I have yeah, to it's ask. about to it's about to get stranger when you when I tell you what I specialized in. So please, please tell me because I'm like very I'm so interested. <laughs> so um I my focus my area of focus was Egyptian language ancient egyptian language um and uh i used to be able to tell you what all those little birds were and whatnot um near eastern language so when you think of west you know when you think of the west or you think of the far east it's always relative to where you're talking about it from and so if your perspective you know when you hear the term near east it means what we call in in modern modern language Middle East, they're the same area. Ooh. So, what is it near east of? Well, Greece, yeah. it's near to east. Uh, but if your focus is the West, is and by the West we mean that those people and cultures west of the Nile River or west of the Rhine River in the United States, Canada, uh, France, you know, England, and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, then then it be, then all of a sudden the Near East becomes Middle of East. Not not near not near of east anymore. The far east remains far and east, but uh, so yes, that's what the near that's what the near east means. Uh, so it orients you to the perspective of the people that are naming it. Uh, tells you as much about the people that are naming the thing as it does about the people that you're trying to describe. Yeah, that that's 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 fascinating. I mean, I I just had to ask because I was like near Eastern. I was like, what? Do you, but it makes a lot yeah, more. My father asked the same question. <laughs> uh, what, what, what am I going to do with that? You know, he's a very practical fellow. He's an engineer. You know, 
very successful what he does uh, and retired now but it's like excuse me you're gonna do what now uh so there you go so from that point on obviously you go to the university of florida law school so not, not immediately not okay so not immediately so describe what happened so I coached college basketball for two years after law school, or sorry, after after being undergrad, and I coached high school for one. Uh, taught in high schools both uh, in uh, while I did that, and then uh, decided to go to go to get a law degree. So what went into that decision? Why you Why did you wake up one day and you're like, I want to go to law school? Um, you'd be surprised to learn how many lawyers coach basketball. And you like, and back in, in 25 years ago, there were several that I knew, uh, Craig Estrick and, and, and who was the head coach of Georgetown at the time is a lawyer. And there were, there were, there were a handful of others. And so what it did, what it, you, you need to, you need a graduate degree of some kind. They don't really care what it is, whether it's in, you know, physical education or law or physics or anything else. You have to have a graduate degree. And so I went to law school intending, never intending to practice. I went to go to law. I went to law school to go back and be a basketball coach. So I, I uh, had a scouting service while I was in law school and that's when my grades were so bad. Um, I was, I living in Gainesville, I am, you know, I can get to pretty much anywhere I want or nearly anywhere in the state on a night's drive. If I leave early enough. I, I could get, if I left in the mid afternoon, I could be in Fort Lauderdale and I'd get back in the early morning hours and see a game if I needed to get to Fort Lauderdale to see a game or Miami even even a little further. But Tallahassee's two and a half or so hours. Jacksonville's an hour and a half. Tampa's a couple hours. Orlando's a couple hours. Those are those are very easy to get to, and I put a lot of miles on that car. Uh, and uh, then when it came time, I, I I arranged my schedule so I graduated early. So I graduated in December uh, mm-hmm. because hard to find a job as a lawyer or as a basketball coach in the middle of the summer. Yep. Um, and I, so I wanted to take the bar exam, be done with that in February and then be on the job hunt after that. But life took a different idea. And, uh, and I ended up coming to Chicago and uh, practicing law. So. That is utterly fascinating. For for me, for me, I love it because I I played basketball my whole entire life. My brother actually played college basketball. Well, where did he play at? He played at Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts. You know okay. what that is? I do. Wow, that is. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. You're probably one of like four people that I've ever met who have said, "Yeah, I know what Assumption College is," because no one ever knows. That is. I've heard a, of it. I could say that. That that is amazing. Um, but yeah, it, it was division two. So I, I've been around yeah. basketball my whole entire life. Uh, and it's great to hear that. And I didn't even know that a lot of basketball coaches are law, have law degrees. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say a lot. I, I would say a handful and more than you would think. And <laughs> it's, and at that time there were several that I knew and it's like, well, let's just do this. So you started as an associate attorney at Newman I'm going to butcher this. Newman raised Newman raised in Shelmadine. Yes. There you go. Thank you. How how was that experience? What what you do? Can you describe what you did there? What you were kind of so in? I got that job because I was the uh, uh, the owner of the firm. Uh, Jim Newman was a uh, also a Gator. He had uh, I, I couldn't find a job. So so let me back up here. So I came here. 
I take her to the Florida bar. I come to Illinois and my plan, because my last semester of law school, uh, I was a CLI or certified legal interns, what they're called in Florida mm -hmm. and Illinois at seven 11, whatever. And so my, uh, the girl that I was dating, she was at a big law firm and they have a very big pro bono program. And they got me an interview at the public defender's office here in Cook County. And I had done my, my last year, uh, my last semester of law school as a CLI at the public defender's office in Alachua County, Gainesville. And this is what I was going to go do. So I, I get here and two days later, I've got this interview and the interview is going great. And I feel like I'm going to get the job. And then he asks me, what's your bar status? I said, well, I took the bar exam last month in Florida. I'm taking the bar exam in July in Illinois. He says, we can't help you. So what do you mean? Rule says, and it still does say, if you do not take the Illinois bar at the first opportunity, you cannot be a 7-Eleven. So there went that plan. Uh, so folks, read the rules. Uh, <laughs> I did not. I learned. And so I couldn't find a job. I ended up working at uh, Borders Books on Mich Michigan Avenue because I couldn't find a job anywhere. Uh, and actually, a guy I worked for there is now a general counsel at a at a, at a, at a firm here or at a, at, a, at a business here in town. It's, it's a very small world. But anyway, I, I ended up couldn't find a job. And I sent out this resume blind, not knowing. It, and I get a call back and I hired two days later. I take the floor, take the Illinois, Illinois bar. Fortunately, I pass it. I get licensed. And then I took the, they paid for me to take the Indiana bar. So I took three bars in a year, uh, fortunately passed them all uh, and was on my way. But when I, when I was at Newman Ray's, I did insurance coverage and some de tort defense, but principally insurance coverage. And it's more or less what I do to this day is what I did then. Many of the same clients, they're now my clients, as opposed to someone else's and develop the business. And the um, uh, the Shelmadine in the name, she now is a colleague of mine. Uh, she she came and joined us about six months ago. So she trained me how to be a baby lawyer, how to be a lawyer when I was a baby lawyer many years ago. And now she and I work together. So uh, it's, it's a very, very small world. Uh, you never know uh where an alumni connection is going to be of meaning and you never know the people that you you know don't burn any bridges people if you can avoid it sometimes bridges have to be burned sure but don't uh you know she she was looking at got the shaft at the place she was at we needed somebody and she is perfect and uh it's great having her so um it's it's a very very small world let's go back a little bit Let's talk about law school. Let's talk about the first year. I always say it's very traumatic for a lot of people. Was it traumatic for you? I I, I was worried about basketball. <laughs> um, I, I I was a very bad law student. Um, I, I do not do what I did in law school. Um, I mean, I did okay. Uh, my grade point average. I was probably in the top third of my class. I wasn't. I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't great. Um, my focus was on. I would I would walk out of class to take calls from coaches because to deal with my scouting service. I, I mean, I, literally, I I'd get up and walk out of class and take a phone call out in the, out in the breezeway, um, and that's what I did because that's what I was focusing on. I I walk whatever. Um, it, it, I didn't do it typically. I didn't do it in days when I was my row was on call, but uh, I, I let's just say I wasn't the most dedicated law student. I had other things on my mind. Um, and uh, I, I did enough. It was very challenging, I suppose, at the very beginning to learn this new law language. 
I struggled with that for a couple of weeks, but ultimately picked it up. But I had just spent four years reading ancient Egyptian. I mean, at least this is in a language I allegedly know. Um, so there wasn't too much they could throw at me uh, that I hadn't that I that that, that I hadn't seen or hadn't you know been intimidated by. Um, I, I thought, and you know, I'm not a big fan of law education, legal education. And if you want to be expound on that, I certainly can. But uh, I I found law school to be I hated law school. I thought it the I I thought I think it's the I, I think it's terrible. Um, the way we, we the way we quote train lawyers, um, and the sooner it ends, the better. But that's unlikely. There's too much money invested in it. Um, I, I I did not I did not enjoy law school much at all. Um, I did it because that's what the hoop of fire is. You have to jump through. But uh, yeah, don't do what I did, people in law school. <laughs> I mean, just say that. So as much as you didn't enjoy it, did you have any experience that was like, this was my favorite of law school? What was like the oh, most memorable thing? When I, when I was a certified legal intern, my last semester, um, I spent every, every moment I could at the jail or in the court or at the office or at the courthouse. I mean, we, uh, I was at the jail at least four, if not five times a week uh, during the week. And the best part about going to the jail is leaving it. Um, and, and so uh, I, I built a good relationship with the with, with the uh, with the corrections officers and with the the, the other the deputies and uh, the judges and the and all but one of the prosecutors with whom we worked. Uh, the way it worked in the system we were at was we were assigned to one judge and anyone who committed a misdemeanor in our county between A and had the last name ending in A to F was assigned to Judge Crenshaw. And there were our group of lawyers were the public defenders in that room. And there was three uh, prosecutors or state's attorneys in that room, one for traffic, one for general, one for domestic. And um, we got along with two of them and uh, were able to, you know, represent our client. I think effectively represent our clients and sometimes uh, took two cases to trial and tried them before I graduated law school. Um I got a directed verdict on one and a uh, dismissal on another for a Brady violation. Um, so had the opportunity to get on my feet and 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 try a case. Uh, won a motion for a writ of prohibition against the judge uh, after I graduated because she got something wrong and I <laughs> it got around the, it got around the 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 courthouse that there was a law student that had got in gotten into it with uh, with Judge Crenshaw. And it wasn't like she was adverse to the, def the criminal defense or criminal defendants. She was the former elected public defender of the jurisdiction. And I said to her, you know, judge, you're just wrong. And she, she <laughs> counseled and she did not like that very much hearing that from a law student. My, uh, my, my uh, mentor with whom I am still, still friends uh, and stay in contact. And she's like, what are you doing? Said, she's wrong. <laughs> and, and sure enough, I draft the motion and I last thing I did as a CLI as I go up to the uh court to the chief judge who is the judge who is the first level of review for these things. Mm -hmm. And I dropped, I filed my motion and I went upstairs and his assistant wasn't there. And he comes out and he uh, I hand it to him, I judge, here you go. And he he looks at it and he knew what he had been he had heard of that this was coming. <laughs> so I was like, you're you're the little, you're the little pain in the ass. Um, and, uh, 
Sure enough, he granted my motion, uh, but I was gone by then. And I used that as my writing sample, uh, as my applications. Uh, so they, this was not only a thing I had written, I had written, I thought, pretty well, but it had been successful in, uh, in, in getting my guy. Now, it had been successful in getting my guy uh, acquitted because it, uh, it was a breach of the statute of limitations was the argument we were having. I can't remember the particulars of it, but it got my guy out. But it being representing criminal defendants and particularly those who are indigent and need public defenders, he promptly got picked up on a uh, felony charge and was in the clink for the next 10 years. So it, it, I did my job, uh, <laughs> but uh, it didn't stop him from involving himself in other alleged, other not alleged, but proved criminality. So uh, uh, be prepared to be disappointed if you're a be prepared for your clients to let you down if you do that kind of work. Um, but many of the folks that we represented either didn't do it or or if they did, it wasn't anything like what had been alleged and they were getting a raw deal, whatever it happened to be um, and 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 giving them the opportunity. You know, it, most of the folks I represented were, were not bad people who hadn't done they had, may have done something stupid, but that was about the extent of it. Very little of what they had done was was really I mean, truly nature representing misdemeanors as opposed to felons. So, but that was the best part. Go, go be involved in a clinic, go get on your feet, go, you know, do something. Don't spend your third year in these crazy advocacy classes where they try to indoctrinate you. Go, go do something useful. The third year of law school is a waste of time unless you make it otherwise. That's that's great advice right there. That was a great story as well. I I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, but going, you you mentioned something that I feel is very important for for people out there, myself as well. Um, having a mentor. Can you kind of describe the importance of having mentorship in the field of law? I've had many. Uh, so when you work as a CLI, it certainly was the case in Florida. I know it's the case in Illinois. You can you can represent people in a certain class of work, but it has to be under the supervision of a, of a senior attorney. And so, um, so whenever I was in court, she always had to be, you know, not too far away. Um, or one of, one of the lawyers had to be not too far away, but she was typically, uh, Sherry was typically the one that I, that I worked with. And she was the one, of course, standing next to me as I was getting into it with the judge. Uh, and it was going to be her that was going to get in real trouble if I if I went too much further. Uh, she was going to get it as bad as I got it um, because she was allegedly supervising me. Uh, it's critical. And I mentioned earlier the you know, Sherry that now other Sherry, different Sherry that now works with me, who I worked for when I was a young lawyer. Um, and then when I was as I've moved to different firms uh, and worked with other people and in, in professional organizations that I've been a member of and. Uh, certainly taken advantage of, that's wrong, not what I mean, but certainly tried to build relationships with people that are senior and have have experience in these things, then try to be a mentor to younger people. Um, and uh, learning how to be, learning to be a lawyer is not, you don't learn that very much of that in law school. Uh, most of that is either, much of it's innate and the rest of it is learned. Um, there's a core of knowledge that I suppose you get, but it's critical to have work with good people, learn from them and, uh, have them take an interest in your, in your development. Um, because you, you can't do it otherwise. 
it's certainly, as I say, it's not happening in law school. So uh, now, I, now I have to ask: Can you expo- Can you expunge on your uh, on your hatred for law school? Well, I I have to know now. It, it, it's there's a conceit amongst lawyers, I think, generally, but amongst law faculty in law schools in particular that we're any different than plumbers. <laughs> we're not. We just we have different tools. There's nothing that this whole idea that there's some esteemed thing that we're doing. No, we're just plumbers. And and um, we try not to show our ass crack. But, you know, sometimes we show it even when we're not actually showing it. I'm guilty of that as much as anyone. Um, and, and I think it's just a view that this is this noble, this noble uh uh, intellectual pursuit when it's just not we're trying we have special knowledge about arcane things that many of our colleagues wrote so that we would have all have jobs and made it obscure and difficult for other people to understand so they couldn't do it themselves and i i I, they'll probably throw me out of the profession for comparing us to plumbers, but it isn't the first time I've done it. Um, I, because you know what? Plumbing is a wonderful profession. It, you know, if you've got, if you're, if your toilet's backed up, if you, if you're, you know, you don't have hot water, there's nothing more important in your life than the plumber. And if you can't fix it, you better find someone who can. And that's not materially different than if you've got a, a serious legal problem. Um, we like to think it of it as something more than that. It's just mm-hmm. not. And so as a consequence, they do this Socratic method thing. And I'll be honest, I think it's a great way to learn. You know, try to get the student, and I do it with the, the people that I work with when I'm trying to, you know, the young people and try to ask them questions, you know, trying to get them to think about the answer. Because if they come up with the answer themselves after a series of questions, they're more likely to, an- to remember the answer. But at the end of the day, what need what we need what you need to do? How do they teach a plumber? Do they send them to a bunch of classes? No, they give them some basics, they give them some tools, and then they send them out in the field to go start fix, fixing hot water heaters and, and unplugging toilets. Because the only way you're going to figure out how to do that is to start unplugging some toilets and fixing some water heaters. That's what you do. So. The 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 law school thing it is a it, it's like the law school industrial complex. It, it's they 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 grift us for all kinds of money. They make us take this ridiculous test, and I guess the best encapsulation I can give you of how stupid law school is was from my first year contracts professor, uh, Professor Davis, who was wonderful. And he said about a couple of weeks before the law school, our, our exam, he stood up in front of the class and he says, now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a law school exam about contracts. Now, this test is not going to test what you learned in this class. This test is not going to test how good a lawyer you're going to be. It's not going to tell you. It's not going to test how much you know about contracts. It's going to test how much how well you can do on a law school exam about contracts, which is a completely <laughs> useless activity. But we're going to do it anyway because you want us to. And let me tell you why. 
Because years ago, we got rid of grades. We went all pass-fail. And then you know what the law firms did? They started ranking you guys by LSAT scores. And you guys really didn't like that. So you told us to start grading you again. And so and he had been there long enough, so I believe what he had to say on that, that, that somehow people thought pass-fail was great. And so lawyers and their imminent, inimitable HR skills said, well, look at LSAT scores, something that's even dumber than law school. They found something dumber than law school exams. They invented the LSAT. I mean, it's getting a little dumber, a little better because they're getting rid of the stupid logic games. Yeah. Don't tell me that that tests anything that has to do with logical reasoning. <laughs> I've seen enough bad logical reasoning coming from from lawyers and judges to tell you that none of them understand logic. I have on my wall here logical fallacies. It's, it's a poster of logical fallacies. You can't see it here, but it's up there. And you wouldn't believe the number of logical fallacies I hear in a given day. Uh, and, and I don't need, it's not formal logic, it's just basic logic. Um, arguments from, a, you know, the entire, I mean, the entire legal profession is built on arguments from authority. It's a logical fallacy. Um, but we do it because that's how the system works. And that's, that's not, so it's not a logical fallacy because it's internal to the system itself. So otherwise the system doesn't work. I get that. But the, there's this, as I as I started by saying, there's there's conceit about what we're really doing, and it's not justified. Uh, we should we should do much more apprenticing. We should, you know, you can learn what you learned in law school, the things you needed to learn, and the the topics on the basics in your in the basic areas in you know a year tops. Uh, you don't need to spend the rest the the latter two years uh, in law school being indoctrinated. You'd be much better off. Um, you'd be much better off going out and getting on your feet, and 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 it would, you know, you want to talk about access, you know, problems with access to justice, and people having, you know, there's an army of law students out there that under the supervision could provide a ton of good good service. Get trained, get trained in the process. We'd produce better lawyers and and assist issues with access to justice. Um, instead we have them locked away in law school and then we make them, and then we make them spend God knows how much, as I understand, Barbary costs, what, six or $7,000 now. It was, I thought it was expensive when it was 2,500 or so when I took it. And now that turns out to be a bargain. Um, and then we make them take a stupid test and then we take them, make them take another test, the, um, multi-state professional responsibility exam. Um, it, I, I don't understand it. I don't think anybody's being made a better lawyer by it. Um, and then we continue the fallacy when we make people take, we have mandatory sort of uh, continuing legal education. Another, another complete farce. Um, so I, I have a, I have, I have big problems with legal education and how we train lawyers. And I have big problems with how we continue to educate lawyers. And we would all be better off if we did those things completely differently. Um, and we'd be a lot better off in a whole number of dimensions. I I have heard talking to law students and lawyers, people saying that the third year is very useless. So it, useless. Seems, it seems like that is a very consensus view. But I think something you said, like a more apprenticeship. I know in the last episode when I was talking to um, Carl Berman, he, he was saying how back very early in America – that there were no formal legal degrees that you would have to get an Lincoln. apprenticeship. Take, take Lincoln is the best, it's the most well-known example. And, 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 you know, I, I thought that was fascinating because like, I, I didn't know that, but I, it should be like that. It seems, it seems right that it should be like that. 
do we really think do we really think that the that the uh amount or the quality of lawyering has gotten better the more that it's been regulated is there any, is there any evidence to support that proposition i i i i will believe i'll read it if someone's got it but i'm <laughs> waiting for it i've never seen it um I, I i don't see few less stealing occurring because i took a third year of law school about some you know advocacy class in third year uh i i don't think anyone gained anything from that you know, when I took a, you know, I took a, I had, to, I took at least one and perhaps a couple seminars as a third year. When I took seminars as an undergraduate in ancient Egyptian, that was to prepare you for being a professor, where you came in and your job was to give an hour and a half lecture as you had a ten week class, which was uh, so I was on the court, we were on the quarter system, and the classes that I took were all cross numbered between graduate and undergraduate. So I was like one of, one, I was like the only undergrad maybe one one of two undergrads in a, in a class of eight students and one professor and so the professor gave the first couple weeks of lectures and then the remaining eight weeks were given by the students and our job was to present for an hour and a half and we had to you know so it's preparing you to be a professor which is preparing for a lecture um and then learning from your colleagues and doing deep research into this and i could go into the whole story of my my particular presentation on the the uh, funerary complex of Amenhotep III. I could do that, but <laughs> in any event, the but that served a purpose that was not only not only training but pedagogical as well. It was training to be a professor, but also it had pedagogy and learning about this particular topic. There is nothing pedagogical, and there is nothing productive towards the practice of law, and nothing that tends towards the practice of, law of a seminar in law school. No, it just isn't. You, you, if it is pedagogical, it's on an area that's so narrow, it's only good for someone that wants to be an academic. And as I've said, academic law, they write for each other. No <laughs> one reads, no one reads this stuff. No one uses this stuff. On occasion, you know, the Supreme Court will cite to, you know, a, a law review article. And yeah, they'll be, yeah, okay, yeah, they're, they're writing for each other. It, it, it's it's a, it's it's ridiculous it's an academic topic and the problem is is it's not an academic discipline it's a professional school we're making plumbers i i love i love the plumbers analogy i'll be i'll be completely honest i i personally enjoy it i think others would enjoy it because it takes a little bit of pressure off of them because it'd be like oh like i'm getting into this very honorable field but it's like you know you just you're just doing what any other person would do. It, it's a it's a profession. The fact is the fact we have to go to an advanced school. We have to take a fancy test. We call it a profession. Okay, that's great. We get to charge more. Okay, that's fine. I get that too. But when we're trying to train people how to do the job, you know, th there's plenty of space for people that want to be law professors and and write about stuff. Go do that. But for the rest of us, they're going to go actually practice and do the nuts and bolts, which is the vast majority of lawyers that are going to be criminal defense lawyers, or they're going to be transactional you know, practitioners and drafting people's wills, or, you know, what emerges act, whatever it happens to be, the vast majority of us are going to practice law. They're not going to be teaching law. They're going to be practicing law. And so teach them. And there's plenty, you want to be a law for great. You want to do research and great. That's, there's a place for that. But don't call that the practice, don't call that what is going on in law school. That's not what should be going on at law school. So 
let's change gears a little bit. Let's go back to what you were doing. So after Newman Rays and Shel Shelmadin, you then went to Red Redonio Camelli and Hogue. There you go. Thank you. And 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 it was very simple. My my practice has been very similar in through the years. There's been some changes. Uh, you know, I've done more coverage at, at different points and more defense work at different times. Um, all the firms that I've been at, because I went from uh, Redonio Camelli and Hogue, and then I went to uh, Patton and Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, which is a, a firm that is uh, the principal lawyer. There's a, a guy named John Patton, who is a fantastic lawyer uh, who's, who's built his practice around parachuting into big cases at the very last second. Uh, he does that all over the country and, and in Chicago, and he has taken some massive verdicts, uh, but his, his position, his uh, role is to reduce the size of those verdicts um, to make them not so massive. Um, and he's very good at his job. And then I was there for a very short period of time that I was at Pretzel and Stouffer. It's a very well-established, long-standing firm in Chicago. I was there for nearly 14 years. And then I went to Goldberg Segala for a short period. And then uh, at my current firm, which I hope is my last firm, uh, <laughs> and I'm here for a very long time, Freeman, Matheson, Gary, which is based out of Atlanta. Um, and is a, you know, for lack of a better term, it's an insurance defense firm. We have uh, 34 offices in 19 states. Uh, we're growing very quickly, um, and it's a, a very exciting place to be. Uh, we opened the Chicago office. My partner, Jonathan Schwartz, and I um, opened the office here in March of 2022. Uh, we're now uh, 18 lawyers here in Chicago. We started with four, uh, and so we're, we're we're growing, and it's very exciting. So in in terms of – so you you started as a partner – but it was like the branch firm. So it's the Chicago branch of the larger Atlanta firm. No, it's, it's all one firm. Okay. I, I, I came in as a partner. I mean, you'll, you'll learn that partner is a, there, there's typically two levels of partnership. Mm. There's partners who are non-equity that are just salary that have a name for marketing. And then you have equity partners who actually own a piece of the profits. Um, and they're what are real, real partners. Mm -hmm. And in some firms, uh, there's buy-in to become an equity partner. Some firms only have one level of partnership, but that's that's somewhat rare uh, nowadays. Most most firms have two layers of partnership because, for a variety of reasons, it's mostly marketing and billing. You can bill your the person called partner at a higher rate than a person called associate or counsel, and you can and for marketing, it's it's a it's a sign of you know you've made it that they have. Typically, it takes seven years for you to become partner at a place. And if you've, you've gone through that gauntlet, you have shown that you, uh, you have the, the requisite skills. It's a whole range of skills. It depends upon the type of practice. If it's a transactional firm, I imagine they have different benchmarks they want you to meet than if you're at a, uh, a litigation practice, like I've always been at. And you've, you've made those benchmarks and they've made you partner. And if you've made a partner at a particular firm, then that tells you or tells other people, it's a signal that you've that you can actually do the job, um, and, and that's it's it's uh, and, and certain firms when someone makes partner, you go, eh, it's, he made partner there, so what? Uh, but if you make partner at certain places, they actually know that means something. That's very that's that's fascinating. I literally had no idea. Um, it's it's blown my mind a little bit. Um, it's very intricate. the The fact that it's it's more it's more or less a marketing ploy. Yes. To, put to be very honest with you, yes, it's a marketing point. That's I, I, 
you know, I, I, somebody say I'm cynical. That's just, it's, it's also, it's also a, um, it's a mark of achievement by a person if they make, they make partner because you have to do certain things. Um, And it's different at different places. You know, at very few places, is it the, that you actually have business, but it's the idea that the partners believe that you can, you can get business in the future. Um, Because ultimately that's what determines it. But at the end of the day, some people just are partners who never have a never have a dime of business of their own because someone's got to do the work well and they're usually excellent lawyers um who can do the work and they you know it very having a little gravel in your voice a little gray in your hair oftentimes means you can do the job uh or at least you've done it for a long time and you've got to have some folks around that around there that can do the job uh because difficult matters come in and you need people to actually do the work is it is it marketing for like people coming to the firm and being like, I need your businesses? Well, you're doing insurance. So are your clients usually insurance companies? Yes, typically, typically, yeah. And so it, it's they it is a certain confidence that this person can do the work. Mm. Um, and then there's different rates based upon, you know, typically there's rates based upon the level of experience the person has. Um and then there is uh um it's an acknowledgement that you know if you have someone that's coming to market to you who's an associate, it's like, well, why aren't you a partner? Why you 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 if you've been out for three years, you're gonna hire someone that's been out three years to do my work because he's been out three years. It's very unlikely that a person of that experience is gonna get much work. Now that happens, sure. Uh there have been young people who have been fabulously successful. They're prodigies. There's not many of those running around. I certainly wasn't one. Uh it it, it takes time to build confidence in others and uh to want to give you work. Um, to show that you you have ex- the experience, and and part of that's because they know that you didn't learn anything in law school, so they 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 got you actually have you practiced? Have you done things? How many hot water heaters have you fixed? Um, have you fixed a hot water heater like mine? Um, you know that's what they want to know. Uh, yeah, I've fixed a hundred hot water heaters like yours. I do that every day. Okay, maybe I'll hire you, but it's going to take many years before you're going to get to fix the fix the hundredth hot water heater. It's going to take a while. I love the simplification of everything. It, it 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 makes it makes it easier to understand, but also it 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 shows as well how overcomplicated the legal field can become at a lot of times. We like that. We we want to make it difficult. We want to make it a, a, a um <laughs> uh, what's the word opaque, so people can't figure out. We want to make it seem mystical. You know, it's, it's fancy. No, it's not. It's it shouldn't be. Our job is to make things simpler for our clients. Our job is to explain. And if I'm ex- if I'm explaining and the client isn't understanding, then I'm not explaining. I'm confusing. My job is to try to explain why and have reasons. And if I can't explain it in a way that makes sense to the client, in that it is both legally correct and understandable, then I need to find a new a new line of work. Um, so hope I mean I always ask, does this make sense? Not really. Okay, let me try it and use shorter words um and and and, i mean because i could explain it to a lawyer and use the vernacular of lawyers in in shorthand and and explain it in a sentence but if i have to break it down for someone that doesn't have that understanding i have to break it down and i i think was einstein that said is if you can't explain something to someone i don't know if it was a a length of time he said it to or or if you can't explain it to someone so they understand it then you don't understand it well enough um you, you know so you have to have a mastery of what you're doing so you can explain it to somebody that doesn't understand what you're talking about 
you know, we can talk to each other. Great. But that doesn't mean that anyone else understands it. And that's ultimately what you have to do is explain it to a real person. Uh, they call those people clients. And <laughs> as a, as one of my mentors is very fond of saying, it's very hard to be a lawyer if you do not have a client. So you, you have to go get a client. And that's how you become a lawyer. Because a lawyer without a client is not a lawyer. So talking about kind of the, the you know, the the Einstein kind of the explain it to a five-year-old kind of thing. Um, can you kind of describe the skills that have helped you throughout your career and that you've kind of gained over time? I, I will say that the, the most important skill that I learned was as a first year in college about reading things closely and carefully um, and learning to read the words that are actually there. Um, and, and when we did it, uh, the professor that I had um, who most influenced me on that was is what he called he was in the, what's called the Committee on Social and uh, the Committee on Social Thought at the, uh, the University of Chicago, which is an interdisciplinary uh, committee that awards uh, it's, uh, that awards grad, uh, uh, terminal degrees. Uh, and he was I forget what his his specialty was in Rousseau. Um, but I took a class from a, a, a year long sequence, two of the classes of which we were on quarter. So there was three sections, three segments of it. But two of the three classes I, I had him for uh, was called uh, Classics of Social and Political Thought. And the first book we read was with him was uh, The Republic. And I and I remember we also read Machiavelli, read The Prince um, and. I'll never forget when you get to book eight of the Prince or chapter eight, I can't remember their books or chapters. Uh, in any event, chapter eight, he describes what, when you read it closely, Machiavelli is actually worse than what you think he is. When you read it closely, he discusses a guy named Agathocles of, of, uh, of uh, Syracuse who murdered all of his rivals and again and what machiavelli says is when you read closely is that agathocles as awful as he was had favor with god because he kept power machiavelli's worse than what you think but you only get that when you read it very very closely um, and so that's what we do as lawyers. We read closely. Uh, we read statutes closely. We read uh, cases closely. We compare them. In my, my profession, a lot of what I read is, is our contracts. They call them insurance policies. Um, uh, and we read them closely and carefully uh, and often and draft them and then read them closely again, and then try to apply them to particular circumstances. But it's that skill of reading and reading closely and carefully, and then listening, um, which I don't do very well, uh, <laughs> is, is really important because when you're trying to develop your case, a lot of that is done at deposition. And everyone focuses on the questions that get asked and not enough on the answers that are given. And when people, they go for like a script, you get a lawyer, you get, they have a script. I'm going to ask these questions. Why don't you listen to what the answers are? Those are far more interesting 
oftentimes than whatever questions you've got. Now, there may be certain topics you want to get, certain questions you want to ask. Sure, I get that. Listen to the answers. Listen to what the judge is saying when they're ruling on your motion. Listen to what the judge is saying on other motions so you know when you file that same motion what the judge is likely to do uh, when it's your turn uh, and what not to do. Uh, don't do that uh, if the judge... Uh, if the judge uh, yells at someone or or denies something and does so unhappily. But listening and reading, uh, two things that we were taught in kindergarten, um, <laughs> learn to do them well. Those are the two most important skills I think a lawyer has. And that listening applies to clients. And, and I, 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 I take, I, I, you know what, I, I forget one. Writing, of course, you know, I think writing is just the flip side of the reading. Writing very clearly, writing concisely uh the word they're called briefs for a reason um and the uh my favorite commentary on on writing is in front from this little clip from uh it's on youtube from a river runs through it and the little boy um goes down to tom scarrett's character and he writes this thing up and tom scarrett marks it all up and sends it back to him and says half as long. He comes back, gives it to him again, and he marks it all up. He hands it half as long. And then he comes back a third time and he hands it to him. He looks at it, goes, good. And he crumples it up and throws it in the trash. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's be concise with your words. It, legal writing should be direct writing. It should not be flowery. It should not be, it has purpose. It generally is intended to be persuasive, at least in my practice. But when you're writing to a client, write clearly, concisely, directly, answering their questions, solve, trying to help them solve their problem. So a lot in what you just said, obviously, reading, reading closely, listening, writing, the three big skills. I love the callback to Machiavelli. I'm a very big Machiavelli fan. I really am. And, and he is very intricate. In have, you, have you read have you read the discourses? The discourses on Livy? Yes. Um, so I've got, uh, uh, admittedly, I've gotten halfway through it. Okay, but, which translation are you using? Oh, it's in the other room. I have okay. no idea. I, I, you should, I, you should I, I would commend to you the University of Chicago versions. Okay. Um, the Mansfield translation. Um, of, oh, Harvey Mansfield, yeah. Yeah, Harvey Mansfield translation. And then Nathan Tarkov has a translation of discourses. I took, I took his class when we read discourses, that's all we did all semester, all quarter was read <laughs> the discourses on Libby. Um, and I took that with, with uh, Nathan Tarkov, who was a colleague of, of Mansfield's. Um, so in the original or translated from the medieval Italian um, into, into English. And I would commend that, that version to you or that addition to you. Uh, also, I was gonna say. especially in combination with Mansfield translation mm -hmm. of the Prince, because they use they translate the words similarly, because they're 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 unified in that way. So, fortuno, which is obviously a very important concept, uh, vir virtue, um, you know these these concepts are, are very important for Machiavelli, and you want to see them how they play out in in, in the two different uh, the the two different books. Yeah, I wrote that down. I definitely will be getting them. I'm a, I'm a philosophy major, so I'm I'm. I, not not that I'd like to do anything with that major or degree, I should say, because there really isn't much you can do unless you want to teach it, uh, which I don't plan on doing. I don't think. Who knows? Um, but 
as well, the writing concisely, the being able to listen. I, I'm very familiar with, with the sort of listening part. Um, actually, this past weekend, I had a mock trial competition for uh, through UAlbany, uh, where, I, where I go to school, and uh, we went to Geneseo. We, we came in second place. My team was very good. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, shout out to my team. But anyway, uh, one of the big goals of mine is on cross-examination, I didn't want to come so prepared with questions to the point where I kind of stuck with it the whole time. My goal for the whole semester is as the witness is doing their direct examination, I kind of write notes, have a sort of, have a sort of, you know, kind of bulleted list of what I wanted to get out and sort of do from there. And I did it both times. It was very, very, it was much easier, actually, I found than having prepared questions because it not only does, is it easier for myself because I could kind of work off of what they're telling me in the answers, but it kind of shows the judge as well that I'm actually reflecting on what's being said on direct examination. So I, I, I felt that was a good analogy into what you said with in terms of listening, uh, in terms of depositions as well, that the answers of the people are much more important than the questions being asked. Yeah, so what you do, you know, when you get good at taking depositions, you just list a, you get a list of topics you want to cover. And you don't care typically what order those get covered in. If the witness goes talking about this, let's talk about that. Let's run that string down. We'll come back to it later, you know, but uh, come back to other things later. But if that's where the witness goes, that's where you go. Um, and, and just let them talk, because a lot of times they're going to talk themselves into a problem. Apropos of your comment about listening to what the witness has to say, my first jury trial here in Illinois the plaintiff, to make a very long story short, the plaintiff had made a concession that he lied during the deposition in the <laughs> deposition. And the plaintiff's lawyer, who's a very nice fellow, he did not pull the pin on that grenade in direct examination. And I had prepared my examination of the plaintiff, anticipating that, all right, that's, I'll, I may mention it, but that's not going to be the feature. Well, he didn't. So, crumpled up the direct exam <laughs> cross-examination and start over because, all right, well, if you're not going to talk about it, let's go. And he wouldn't admit what he had said in the deposition. So I end up getting to read the entirety of the impeachment, the entire exchange where he admits that he lied about where and when he got treatment and that he the good book told him not to lie. And the part where my colleague who had taken the deposition said, yeah, that in the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure. Um, and uh, he, <laughs> he uh, yeah, so I got to read all of that. And let's just say the jury wasn't very happy with the plaintiff when that was done. Uh, because juries hate liars. They don't care if they're plaintiffs or defendants. They don't like liars. Well, that's a, that's a good thing to know for the future if I ever get into any litigation. And that's very cool to hear about an in-real-life impeachment, because obviously they have it in mock trial. It's not as crazy, but uh, an in-real-life one, I feel like, is that a rarity? No. I had my last trial was about a year ago now, uh, which was, was a little over a year ago. I think I impeached him seven times. <laughs> um, it, it, the judge didn't care, it seemed. It was a bench trial. She didn't seem to be impressed by all the impeachment. Um, but it was fun as he would say something. I go, well, Mr. So-and-so at the deposition, you were asked this question. You gave this answer and just impeach. It's like, that's just the exact opposite of what you just said. Um, it's like, yep. It's like, you're just a stinking liar. How many times <laughs> do I have to show you're a liar? Um, no, it happens. I, I, uh, 
couple several years ago, a colleague of mine was trying a legal malpractice case, and I was helping him out with the witnesses and whatnot, but the client would let us have more than one lawyer at the table. And so uh, we um, he, he impeached the plaintiff at least a half a dozen times um, during the course. The guy just kept lying. It was like, you cut that out. So when you have your examination, when you're at trial, you've got your questions because you you now you now know what he's going to say because you've already taken his deposition. So you do have a list. And you've got, if he answers contrary to that, you've got the impeachment right there. And you he's, he's got a binder with his deposition. The judge has got the binder. You've got the binder. All right, open to whatever page, line number, and start reading. And out comes the impeachment because you know the answers because on cross, you, I mean, you literally know the answer. This is not discover anymore. This yeah. is, I know the answer. And I know the answer because I asked you and you told me the answer. So there shouldn't be a surprise. And if you decide to change your answer and you're asking closed-ended questions anyway, mm -hmm. so you're asking questions where the answer is only yes or no, hopefully yes. You just get them to agree to, with you a 50 or 75 times and you've had a good cross-examination. He, he says 75 words. Cross-examination is you testifying, not the witness. Um, and so you go do the testifying. And if he disagrees, then you, all right, that's fine. Let's play this game. Uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Let's go impeach you. And that's what you do. One of my favorite quotes as well, play stupid game, play stupid prizes. I love that one. Uh, and that was like one of the first things I ever learned in mock trial is on direct examination. The witness is the star of the show on cross. It's all you get after him, do whatever you can to mess him up. Uh, what I have to ask, though, is is the impeachment in like actual court? Is it a formal process or is yes. it? Yes. Okay. It's a formal process. You you ask them if you know, on this date, were you placed under oath and did you give testimony? And then it's at that time where you ask this question, did you give this answer and you read it and they say yes. And then you may draw the object. You tell them where, where to turn and what pages everyone can see. Because you may draw an objection that's improper impeachment, that what you're asking about isn't actually impeaching of what they just testified to. And you may have an argument over that. Maybe you have a sidebar, depending. Uh, in a bench trial, you may just do it right there, but it, it depends mm -hmm. if it's going to influence what the witness says. But you you have the argument right there as to whether it's in, uh, improper impeachment or not. And then you read it, and hopefully it's impeaching, and the jury is paying attention. So let's switch here a little bit. Let's talk about your podcast because I'm interested. Is it a hobby? It is a side, or is, or do you like doing it? Let's, let's we, we do like doing it. We want to make a nickel. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's very narrow in its focus. Uh, Dan Cotter and I, uh, we started doing it. I think in uh, the uh, January of 21, I had wanted to do one for a long time and and couldn't really. It was worried about the techno, you know, technical aspects of it, and then realized this actually isn't that bad. And originally, I wanted to do it with a plants lawyer. Um, and, uh, couldn't find somebody. And then Dan, uh, I know Dan knew Dan a little bit and he agreed to do it. And so it focuses on oral arguments in the Illinois and Indiana courts of review, mm -hmm. the seventh circuit and the Supreme court of the United States. Dan and I both have columns in the Chicago daily law bulletin. Mm -hmm. Dan's column focuses on the, uh, Supreme court a lot. I, I focus, my column is for the defense. It's a column that focuses on civil defense issues or, or issues of interest to civil defense lawyers. And then I've had a fair amount of discussion of free speech issues recently as well, but a lot of civil procedure type stuff is what I discussed. And then, so we, we both have the, uh, both have columns there. And then we, uh, 
as I say, we focus on oral arguments. We do, we've done some uh, arguments from other states that are kind of in our areas. We're both, we both have an insurance background. So we do, it's heavy on civil and heavier on insurance. Uh, and so we do three, we try to do three arguments a week if the, if the volume is there um, in the areas where we, we do, we go. And then we, uh, we talk about those cases. Uh, typically I'll talk about two, Dan will talk about one, Dan introduces the thing. We, we, we split up the, uh, the, 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 or the laboring, the labor. And then we have, we do our prediction sure to go wrong. We, we predict how the cases are going to turn out, which is always a dangerous thing. Although our record is pretty good. I will say we do a rule. We do a rule of the week. Um, you know, we talk about oftentimes they come from other uh, LinkedIn posters. Uh, Corey Webster is one from California. We take a lot from him. Uh, and then uh, we, uh, so we, we have, a, we have a good time with it. Uh, we both are pretty active on LinkedIn too. So there's, there's that. Yeah. I, I personally, I love, doing I, this is only what is it this is the sixth episode i love doing okay. podcasts i really really do it's very it's a very fulfilling thing for me and like i'm not the biggest fan of school so this is like per it's just so perfect for me um and i love talking to people too i'm very i'm very interested in a lot of things um so so i just i just had to ask um so as well in addition to you know your 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 partnership with Freeman Mathis and Gary. You're also a board member of the Illinois Association of Defense Trial Councils. I actually, I'm I'm actually an officer now. Oh, you're uh, an officer. I, I, it's been I'm up. An, all, I'm, a, I'm a secretary. I'm the secretary treasurer of the uh, Illinois Defense Council, um, and I am a past president of the Professional Liability uh, Defense mm -hmm. Federation. Um, I'm a member of a number of other organizations as well, but. Those are the two big ones, I would suppose. Yeah, I also have Association of Defense Trial Attorneys. Yes. That's that's uh, yeah. I'm a member of the ADTA. Um, I'm also a member of the Defense Trial Council of Indiana. Mm -hmm. So, what exactly do you do there? Can you describe kind of because I don't know what they are, and I'm interested. <laughs> so, those are all professional bar associations, but with a focus on people with people that do civil defense work. So the Illinois Defense Council is member is Illinois licensed attorneys focusing on the full range of uh, civil defense work. DTCI is similar, uh, only for Indiana. They're both uh, what are called SLDOs, that is state and local defense organizations affiliated with Defense Research Institute, of which I am also a member. I'm also a uh, member of the task force on third party litigation funding with DRI. And then uh, the ADTA is a national organization of lawyers to select type situation, as whereas the IDC and the DTCI, you can be a member just by being in the state and doing that work. Uh, ADTA is a select group, and it's a sister organization of the DRI um, with limitations on geography of where people are located. And the idea of that organization is referral amongst its members. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Professional Liability Defense Federation is a national organization of lawyers who concentrate their practice in professional liability, uh, defense work. So doctors, lawyers, accountants, so forth. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a really great organization that uh, I was privileged to be the president of uh, during during the pandemic, which was interesting to lead a bar association in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> I, I recommend highly against it. Um, <laughs> Building off of that, it kind of sounds like they're big giant networking 
sort of networks. Sure. But it's also an opportunity to build your brand. It's an opportunity to write. It's an opportunity to speak. It's an, uh, there, there, and it's, it, it turns out that the practice of law is a social, uh, activity, um, and unlike plumbing. And, uh, <laughs> so in that regard, it's great. It's, it's, it's great to be around people that do something similar to interact with those folks, to, uh, share ideas. Uh, there's a whole range of advantages to, to, um, to being, um, in, uh, bar associations and then if someone's a lawyer they should be in a bar association this is sort of a double question but can you can you talk about the importance of networking in the field of law as well as the fact of the importance of building your brand because i heard you say that and i'm really interested in what you have to say about that so networking is critical because most of your referrals or most of your business is going to come from other lawyers uh, who refer your business, refer you business for any number of reasons. Um, and people go into in-house, they come back out, they come back and be outhouse like me. Um, yeah, I like being an outhouse lawyer. I can't imagine being an in-house lawyer. Um, you're supposed to laugh at that. That's a joke. Being an outhouse <laughs> lawyer. Um, and the, uh, uh, it's trading of ideas um, and building your reputation within the community is is really critical. I've done that principally through my writing uh, through LinkedIn. Uh, I I post I've posted I think every day, every morning for six or seven years. Um, I've kept all of my posts. I have them in a single Word document that's like eleven hundred pages, so I can go back and find them with the links, so I can find them. My first line of research is are my uh, old posts because I kind of keep them in my brain. And then that's really built off of that. That led to my column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. It's led to um, uh, the it's led to um, business opportunities. It's led to a whole range of things. I'm not on Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever they're calling it this week. Um, <laughs> Snapchat, Instagram, any of that other stuff. I, I, I there's sometimes I get very frustrated with LinkedIn for a whole variety of reasons, but it, it's it's really been a great platform for me. Um, but you still can't replace the personal interaction of being with people at an in-person CLE, learning about topics from people that uh, are knowledgeable in the field, uh, for, whether it's as a presenter, which I have done often, uh, very often. Or, uh, or in the audience being able to ask a question or just simply listen. Uh, and the, the practice of law or law, the law does not stand still. It changes constantly. And that's one of the things that I find so frustrating about law school education is they teach us like, well, now you know things. And so many, so many <laughs> law students come out and say, like, well, I know this. No, no, you don't know anything. Because it just changed last week. You know, Smith versus Jones just came down and it changed, it changed things. So no, that top, what you learned was wrong. Uh, and if you don't stay on top of things, you have no hope. Um, it's critical, um, just as it's critical for any professional to learn all the new things that have come out, um, you know, whether it's medicine with doctor or with, uh, with, with uh, you know, drugs or new discoveries, no different. Uh, or accountants with tax laws that change all the time. Or what, what you name the profession. Um, I, I'm sure plumbers have the same problem. 
the basics remain the same. You know, in the case of doctors, save the guy. In the case of accountants, pay the taxes. In the case, you know, in the case of plumbing, you know, make, make the stuff work. But how you get there may change and change radically. And so you have to remain up to date on these things. And if you don't, you, you got no shot. Um, and, and it makes your life much easier if you already know the changes. You stay abreast of the changes that are happening. And that's not only in the case law, but also in the rules and other things. I I absolutely commend your honesty and your straightforwardness because it really it's it's my I, I it's you're my type of guy. I love that it's just straight to the point. You don't sugarcoat anything. If you it's don't much sugarcoat in our, in our profession, exactly. If, if you don't keep up, there's no hope. And I love you know the, for six seven years you're doing a LinkedIn post every single day. It it brings me back to the sort of uh, uh, you know history of the Peloponnesian War. The the Odysseus always says to keep a log, and you know he did it himself, and that's how he recounts the war. Um, and it's and it's very and well, how much how how much re- recounting and how much politicizing there is in Thucydides is a story for a different day. But yes, <laughs> I'm glad to say I, I I could say I read Thucydides in three different classes as an undergrad. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yes, uh, there's uh, Thucydides is great. It's we like to call it scientific history. It's not. It's just his opinion. He just hides it better than, than Herodotus. Um, <laughs> but I I feel it is analogous to what you're doing with the LinkedIn post because and obviously like well, it, it's very the, flattering to be compared to Thucydides. I know. I know. <laughs> if people I know. are reading my stuff two thousand years from now. Something's gone wrong. <laughs> something's gone very very wrong. Or twenty five hundred years from now, something's gone very very wrong. I feel it's it's all it's very important to yourself as well to have all that information because not only do you have your own body of work that you can you know present to people and and have a sort of you know I I do things kind of thing, but it also allows you you know I, I I'm a believer I'm a I'm a believer that you are what you eat and you know what what you consume every day is very important in terms of not just like food, um, but you know, in, in the media and, you know, what, what kind of writing do you consume? What, what are you reading every day? Cause you kind of, you emulate that in a sort of way. So if you're always writing every day, especially for you, you're seeing the rule changes, you're seeing, you know, the, the different court cases coming down, you're very cognizant of, you know, where things are and also where things are going. And I, I find that very, very fascinating from my perspective, uh, cause you're always keeping up with the times. And you know you're staying hip to the law as they should. Oh, hip to the law. It, it's hard. Sometimes it's like it's like drinking out of a fire hose. So there's <laughs> things that get missed. Um, you try to catch up. You try to catch them, but it's also part of that network. Is people will put me onto things, and say, "Hey, did you see this?" I go, "No, I didn't. Thanks for forwarding it." So I find out about things I w- otherwise would have missed because people know that I follow these things or have an interest in them, and and they'll 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 point me in that direction, or or, or give me the information so I can stay on top of it. And it's it's been a good thing. So now a little bit of a more personal question. Obviously you're you're always writing on your LinkedIn, you're working as a partner, you're doing you're doing law all day. But what does an ideal Sunday morning or an ideal Friday night look for Patrick? Well, Friday night and Sunday morning would be very different. Um uh Friday night, uh if it were we're in Chicago, then I I'm hoping that we're uh maybe get some ribs at uh at twin anchors and go listen to some blues at uh um up on up on halstead uh it's a number of places we can go to uh, kingston mines in all likelihood maybe even uh finish off the evening with some catfish uh 
but uh, th that probably looks like it's Sunday morning is probably going to look like work. Um, <laughs> it, assuming Saturday night didn't take too much out of me. Uh, uh, Sunday morning is going to might look like a run, some laundry and some work. Uh, and if it's the right time of year, there might be some uh, some English football on the television. You're an English football fan. <laughs> I, 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 it's, I don't get to watch it nearly as much as I would like, but yes, uh, I, 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 I do enjoy, I do enjoy some footy. Who, who, who do you support? I have to ask. I, I, I we got engaged in Barcelona, so I, 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 I support Barcelona. But when I, I love watch, that. <laughs> um, so I watch. So I said Sunday morning. That's why I didn't say. That's why I didn't mention La Liga because typically their games it's are played in later in the yeah. later in the day and. God, they they start games at like ten o'clock at night local. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, "What? Are you, the Spanish are just wild." Um, I well, those people are crazy. Uh, I get up too early in the morning uh, to stay up that late sometimes. Uh, but you know, I just enjoy the the English game. Is obviously uh, they've got so much money, um, oh, yeah. they, they they can they can buy uh, they can buy teams that are that are they're quite remarkable. So it's it's a, it's a never ending soap opera over there. Absolutely. I'm I'm a very big Chelsea fan. Okay. Um, where I've spent a lot of money. Uh over a billion dollars in the last three. Yeah. Well they got their show for it? What what where are they at in the table right now? I, I'm, I'm serious. I don't know. I, I, I haven't I have not followed it nearly closely enough this year. Unfortunately, we are in tenth. So that's right. I thought they were mid table. Okay. Very good. It's 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 very unfortunate. It's it's all right. With all that money, it's it's shocking. It hurts. It hurts me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hear you. That's that's but, that's but a, you know what? That's, that's hard. This two weekends ago, we we drew to Man City four four. My mm, brother, four, four. It, yeah, that was my brother is a huge Man City fan, so it was. I, you know, that's that. that <laughs> had he ever heard of Man City before fifteen years ago? I mean, come on, They're these people that are Man City fans, get come on, give me a break. That's it's 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 like a it's a it's a fraud. The whole thing. Never mind the FFP. I don't care about the FFP. The thing is a fraud. It's like a, it's like a made up team. It's ridiculous. They hadn't been hadn't won a championship since what nine sixty eight, prior to the to the uh, uh, to being bought by by uh, Abu Dhabi, and and now they like win every week, and it's it's ridiculous. It's it's fake. It, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, oh, Patrick, thank you for saying that. I'll be complete. He's 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 gonna be listening to this and hear that and be like, oh my goodness, and he'll let me know. I mean, I, I want to hear the comeback to that. <laughs> Tell me what the response is. Tell me what the response is, please. I, I have to hear this. I'm I'm not sure what it would be. I, I yeah, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of a fake team. Great, congratulations. <laughs> I'm a fan of the White Sox. They're terrible. I'm still a fan. I still wear that crap. They're terrible. I'm just going to wait out the owner. Eventually he'll die. And, and I mean, I don't want it to be anytime soon, but, or he'll sell, but uh, he's a terrible owner. Um, uh, but these guys, I mean, they're great owners. That's great. But who's a fan of that? I, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're a fan of. I don't, I don't understand. What are you being a fan of? It's, it's you know I'm 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 on the right side over here I I I don't support. Well, it. we'll get to you in a second. Uh, you, know, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to you in a second. I'll stay. I'll but. stay. I'll stay quiet then. <laughs> a darker shade. A darker shade of blue is a problem. Yeah, down 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 in London. Yes, but at least it's like a team that existed that someone had heard of exactly two minutes ago. Exactly. exactly. It actually had done something. You know. So. Uh, 
finally, Patrick, we're at the last segment, last question. What are your words of wisdom to those law students out there, the aspiring law students, even the current attorneys right now? What do you have to say to them? I, I think that um, much of what I've already said, but mostly it's be diligent in your practice, in your in your development of your skills, of your knowledge, um, and never think that you actually have figured it out because um, you haven't. It will change. Uh, our our, our uh, profession is one that changes constantly, and it's essential that you stay apprised of, of those um, changes. And uh, so as a practice development issue, you know, you need to be diligent in, you know, every day I have a reminder uh, to check recent cases from Illinois, Indiana, the Seventh Circuit, and, and, the, and the Supreme Court of the United States so that I listen to oral arguments in those jurisdictions, not only for the podcast. I was doing that anyway. The podcast is just another outlet of what I was already doing. Um, and it's been the best thing that's happened for, I turned that into a marketing thing, but it started as I need to do this in order to know what's going on. Um, and I may have taken it to an extreme, but you know, I, I, you asked what I do Sunday morning, uh, when I worked at Redonio, uh, Redonio's office, uh, Redonio every Saturday morning, he would put negligence or insurance into Lexus and pull all the cases from the week that had those terms in them and read them that was his way of reviewing every every sunday is what uh is what nunzio would do and uh that's how he stayed apprised i do it every day he did it one day and the made some days he probably didn't have very much in some weeks he probably had a whole lot it may have taken him through monday morning to read through everything uh but some system for you to stay on top uh of the of the developments in the law is, is critical well I couldn't agree more, Patrick. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for having me. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And I will see you in the next one.